we're now recording, so don't worry. Anything you say that's incriminating, I'll delete, and there will be no evidence of it in the Perfect. future. <laughs> During the recording, while we're uh, talking, if you feel like you like fumble your words or you want to redo anything, just take mm -hmm. a like a one two second pause, and then start from like wherever you want to start over again. And then it, I could easily edit out the mistakes or anything like that. So don't worry. Don't feel pressured to be perfect. Wow, you're going to make me look so polished. <laughs> you won't believe how many ums and likes and you knows I take out. Like, yeah. it, it, that alone takes like two, three hours usually <laughs> for like a one hour podcast. Welcome to Red Dot Project, a podcast brought to you by Red Dot Project. This podcast is about social issues, homelessness, menstruation, and a variety of other topics. I'm your host, Phil, and thank you so much for taking the time to download this episode. We are very excited about it, and we are excited that you're here listening to it. If you get a chance, please give us five stars on the podcast app you downloaded this on, and leave us a comment. If you'd like to be a guest on one of our shows, please email us at podcast at red.projecttoronto.org. Today, we have an amazing guest, a good friend, and someone I look up to immensely. Today's guest is Maureen Bornbaum. Maureen is a registered social service worker, clinical traumatologist, and certified addictions counselor who works from a trauma-informed, anti-oppressive framework. Maureen gained a Bachelor of Honors in Global Development and Gender Studies from Queen's University in addition to a social service worker diploma from Seneca College. After completing her studies in 2017, Maureen joined Cornerstones to Recovery full-time as a program facilitator and counselor. Maureen provides a variety of services in Cornerstone Pathways, Wellness, and Residential Programs. She manages the Wellness Center and program coordinates and facilitates women's support groups. She also runs the exit planning program within Cornerstone Residential Men's Program. Today, Maureen and I are going to talk about the Wellness Center and what unique program she has developed within it in order to best support people who are dealing with addictions and or mental health. Without further ado, here is my talk with Maureen. And we have Maureen here. Welcome, Maureen. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. We are so excited to have you here and get to know you better. So to start, we're going to do a quick fire round. I'm going to ask you questions. You have to give me very quick answers and very little explanations can be given after that because we're just going to power through them. Are you ready? Okay. Yeah, it sounds good. Number one, what is your favorite thing you have in your closet right now? Ooh, roots, leather, duffel bag. Two, what is the best piece of advice you ever received? Take a moment and actually experience what you're experiencing. Number three, do you have pets? I do, I have two cats and a dog. Number four, what is your favorite movie ever? Uh, okay, first thing comes to mind, Romeo Dallaire's Shake Hands with the Devil. Number five, describe yourself as a teenager in three words. Angsty, emotional, dramatic. Number six, what is your biggest pet peeve? Wow, I'm practicing so much positivity, I can't even think of it right now. Um, biggest pet peeve. Probably choosing ignorance. We'll go there. Number seven, dark chocolate or milk chocolate or other? I hate all chocolate. Oh, now this is where our, our listenership just dropped. 
<laughs> number eight, what's your favorite type of cheese? Cheddar. I'm boring. <laughs> number nine, does pineapple belong on pizza? Yes, I hate pineapple. Love it on pizza. Perfect answer. Number 10, what is on your iPod right now? Or iPhone or phone, Who whatever you listen to. Phil, do we still use iPods? No one uses iPod anymore. <laughs> I'm listening to Lady Gaga's new album constantly. Number 11, name a book that you read that positively shaped you. Mm. I'll say the same as the movie because it changed my entire direction. It'd be Romeo Dallaire, Shake Hands with the Devil. Number 12, who would you play you in a movie about your life? Brock Lesnar. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, number 13, iPhone or Android? iPhone, all the way. 14, uh, what is your favorite TV show? God, there's so many. You know what? Let's just go for it. I'll say Tiger King. I really enjoyed it. Hey, it was a good one. It captivated the world for a couple weeks. I'll just let people judge me freely with that one. <laughs> Number 15. What's the best gift you ever received? I had an ex draw me a picture of a family member that had recently deceased. Uh, and it was really beautiful. It was a really nice gift. Wow. That is good. That that took it a different place. When you said an ex draw me... <laughs> I was like, it's going to be like Titanic. <laughs> yeah. It's like, oh, God, we're going to have to cut this out. Yeah. 16. If you had one superpower, what would it be? Fly. Perfect. It's boring, but definitely fly. <laughs> That's a perfectly good one, especially how much airfare costs these days. It would be good to exactly. fly. So now we got to know you a little better. There's something that is missing from your bio that I read that I think is important to mention because i think it's like super cool is what is your hobby my hobby is competitive powerlifting. what is competitive powerlifting? that is a great question because no one knows what it is because <laughs> it's like a niche underground sport but powerlifting is a strength sport so most people will be familiar with olympic weightlifting which we see on the olympics the most common thing I get is like, oh, I'm a powerlifter and people and people can't see me right now, but they do kind of like a an over-the-head motion. And I'm like, no, I don't put anything over my head. So people often know Olympic weightlifting and they'll know Strongman from watching it kind of on ESPN when we were kids. So powerlifting is part of that family. It's a strength sport, but powerlifting does maximal output of three lifts. So you have a maximum one repetition of the squat, the bench, and the deadlift. And you're competing for the highest total or coefficient, depending on the competition, based on your weight class. That's cool. How did you get started in that? I got started in it. I was, I've said this on a past podcast and my coach laughed at me, but I was a really unathletic child and teen. Like I was not good at sports. I'm not very coordinated. I just, I wasn't an athletic person. I became quite overweight in high school because I was smoking too much pot and I just, didn't know what it meant to move my body. So my mom got me a personal trainer at Good Life. I just kind of slowly but surely got into like general health and well-being. But I was really drawn to lifting weights. I'm quite competitive, so I really liked watching my strength progress. Um, and then when I went away to university, I met a friend who worked out at a local Good Life, and he started working with me just on some training stuff, and he was a powerlifter. And I just, like, over the span of about two years, became really intrigued with the sport and what he was doing. It seemed really badass and fun and aggressive, which drew on my angsty teen personality. Um, and then it just grew from there. That was, I think, about seven years ago now. 
So it just, it was kind of this slow trickle, but this interest that just never went away. And then eventually I dived in and kind of never looked back. That's cool. Where have you competed? What is that like? I started by just competing locally in Canada. I've competed in Barrie, Mississauga, Hamilton, Kitchener, Waterloo, Newmarket, all over kind of the GTA. And then more recently, I started competing internationally. I've competed in California, Ohio, Louisiana. I competed anywhere else in the States. I think, I don't think I'm missing anything. I think that's everything. And then I was supposed to compete again in California and New York and Australia this year, but that is of course not happening. So hopefully 2021, I'll get to compete in Australia. Wow. That's cool. Um, So how does like the ranking system work? Is it like a global thing or is it just local? Powerlifting, that's kind of the worst part of the sport. I'll try to kind of get at it in a summary because it's it's kind of infuriating. So powerlifting, because it's not a regulated sport, it's not an Olympic sport. So as soon as the sport isn't an Olympic sport, it doesn't have one regulatory body. Powerlifting has a lot of ego and fractured history. So there's kind of, I don't know, 30, 40 international federations. Locally, I compete with the Canadian Powerlifting Federation, the CPF, um, so they have their own regulatory bodies. So basically kind of everyone in their mom can say that they have a world record. But what we really look at it as is something called all-time world records, which are ranked based on your weight class and your age category, the primary one being open. So I compete open in the 165 class, 75 kilo class. So there's a lot of mess there but the best way to look at it is there's the all-time rankings which regardless of federation are by weight class and the open categories kind of and gender uh it's probably the best way to look at it it's a little messy but that's the primary thing so i know this is probably a question that you hear all the time but uh bro what do you uh bench what do you squat (laughs) my bench is ooh, i should know my numbers everything's in kilos so the conversion to pounds my best bench is i think about 270 um my best squat in sleeves is 474 yes and my oh god no oh al's gonna kill me if he hears this my best sleeve squat is 440 my best wrapped squat which is knee wraps in a meet is 474 but i did 501 uh recently in my basement gym but it wouldn't count in powerlifting terms because it's not at a competition so hopefully i can do that soon at a competition and my best deadlift is 507 so my i think my best total is like 1245 i can't even remember i should know this but i I don't (laughs) wow that's uh, that's a lot of weight so if i was trapped under a car i would call you to lift it off of me as long as i don't have to move my feet i've, I've got you okay, thank you <laughs> thank you you're now on my uh phone in case of emergency number so <laughs> in case of that specific need yeah all right so let's uh talk to you about some of the things that you do for work awesome so you are at cornerstone yeah cornerstone to recovery Yeah. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your agency that you work at and uh, some of the background history of that first? Yeah. Cornerstone's a really fascinating agency. If I take myself out of it, honestly, it's fascinating. Very base level, Cornerstone is a community charity, nonprofit agency that provides addiction services to adults and families who are impacted by substance abuse. 
that's their main, but the kind of interesting part about Cornerstone is that it's not a government funded agency. So we don't receive any government funding. We're not funded by the LIN, like the local health uh, network, for those that aren't familiar with my endless acronyms. And they're grassroots. So they were founded by someone in recovery and most of our staff is in recovery. Um, So it's a really interesting perspective. I always wanted to work in a grassroots organization through my educational experiences. And then one day I kind of woke up about a year in Cornerstone. I'm like, oh my God, I am at a grassroots organization. So it's a really interesting organization because it's not in the agency bubble where they're all funded by the same source. And that has both benefits and challenges, but just as like as a social service worker and as someone in the field, it's a really fascinating approach. It's very community-based. So Cornerstone's entire ethos is that, you know, it, it, community as the treatment model, connecting with each other as, you know, the main modality. We have all the traditional approaches, but the really unique part about Cornerstone is the emphasis on community and treatment being in the community. Yeah, I think one of the cool things about the addictions area of the field is that while overall field is trending towards uh, really paying attention to lived experiences and keeping them as experts, I think The addictions field has been doing that for a long time and using people with lived experiences as a lot of people who drive the support for other people's recovery. Whereas other areas of field has always been like these highly educated university, you know, doctors that say this is what's best and you have to go with it. And so now we're in a point where we're learning that lived experiences, they are the people who know best in these situations. And so you're sort of in an area that's been already modeling that for much longer than everyone else. And that's really cool. Yeah, it's so true. You know, it's such a fascinating field because I once heard someone speak, it was at a CMHA conference, and they were saying that we have, so we always say addictions and mental health, but Mm -hmm. the person was making the joke of it's addiction or mental health, dot, 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 and addictions, because they're often so separated. I mean, even in York region, we have a mental health agency, and then we have an addictions agency. So it's this really interesting divide, um, but it's so true of when I hear agencies that are and they're doing their best. It's not a shot, but I always hear, you know, we need to, we need to include stakeholders. We need to include consumers. We need to, we have our peer counselors and our peer program, um, which is great. But what I've found so interesting about my experience at Cornerstone, like if I, especially when I started there, you know, Cornerstone's not like, oh, so we have our peer program. They don't use the word peer. I use that when I'm writing grants because I know that's the language that the granting bodies will understand, but they mm-hmm. don't use that language because that's their, their entire model. Right? Yeah. Like it's, it's a really interesting piece of addictions of a lot of the time residential counselors will not get hired if they're not in recovery themselves. Um, unlike a lot of mental health without the addictions piece treatment centers uh, where people can actually be discouraged from applying if they have those experiences Mm-hmm. Not writing, but in actuality, um, because of the the perception that you can't create a separation and that there will be more transference. It's really, it's fascinating. I think I could write an entire PhD dissertation on it. Well, maybe there's one in the future for you. Better uh, get on that before a listener goes and takes that idea from you. I'll be right, Morty. All 10 listeners, one of them is going to be applying for the PhD and we'll <laughs> steal it. 
so how did you get into not only the addictions area of the field, but with Cornerstone in particular? Kind of, it was a bit of a stumbling experience. Um, I studied global development and gender studies in my undergrad with the goal of getting into international human rights law. I had this whole, this whole thing. And that did not happen for a number of reasons. And I ended up going to Seneca for SSW where I met Phil. And I knew I wanted to work in crisis and trauma. Like I, I knew I wanted an environment that was fast paced. I knew I didn't want to work with the government. And I knew I just wanted to work like frontline with people in their raw experience. I had heard about Cornerstone through like a long time family connection. So I knew they existed. They were called Steps at the time. So when I was applying for placements, I applied to, I'm trying to remember the name of the agency. You might know them. They're in Toronto. It was, I think, the Canadian Centre of Research on Torture. I can't remember the exact name, but it's a big anti-torture agency in Toronto. I applied to them and I applied to Steps, like two very different directions. And I had interviews with both, but when I was at Steps for my interview, it just captivated me with their model and how real it was. I'm sitting in class and learning about all the stringent policies with social service work. And then I'm at Cornerstone and it's raw and real and fast paced and really grassroots. And I was honestly just really captivated by the staff and by the approach. Um, so I did my student placement there. Uh, I was actually hired on for the summer. I did some research for them. Then I did my student placement and then I was hired full time uh, immediately after school. So I've been with them now in varying capacities since 2016, I guess I would have started. So that's kind of how I got there. But it was honestly just a stumbling. I remember talking to, it was actually Justin, uh, who taught me group dynamics and saying, like, I'm, I'm really not sure this is in the direction I thought I was going to go in. And he really encouraged me because my whole goal was working with people, with people who are experiencing things that are really real. Um and kind of living like a sober lifestyle myself, it was, there was just a lot that really captivated me and really drew me in from kind of the moment I walked in those doors. So that's kind of where it went. And now it's been four years later and it's been a bit of a whirlwind, but yeah, it was certainly not what I had planned, not what I envisioned, but I'm thrilled that it ended up the way that it did. So within the addictions area of the field, uh, there's a couple of different models that people work off of. Do you, can you explain a little bit of some of them, like just broadly, just so yeah. people who are listening understand? Yeah. So the two, the two big ones, of course, are, and what they're commonly understood on is either ends of the spectrum, which I could argue about all day, um, are harm reduction and abstinence. Harm reduction being a model that looks entirely at giving people choice and having as human beings, we deserve to have the right to choose what we do. Um, and really meeting people wherever they're at, no matter what that looks like, and not placing any rules or restrictions on what they can access and how they can access services based on where they're at. So it's a very open approach and very focused on the individual gets to make the choice for their lives. So in the context of drug use, uh, or substance use, or misuse, or addiction, or whatever language people want to use here, it can look at everything from we commonly understand harm reduction with addiction as like needle exchanges and methadone and suboxone, but really it's a lot of things. It's everything from just helping people access basic needs to safe supply. There's lots of different levels for harm reduction when it comes to substance use. So it looks a lot of different ways. BC is definitely the leader for Canada. So we have the harm reduction side. We have abstinence, which is 
partially what I work in. Cornerstone isn't entirely just abstinence model, but abstinence model being that people are choosing for themselves that they want to abstain from all mind-altering substances, and they're using that path. That path has many different doors, but the most common one we understand is 12-step recovery. It's like Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, Cocaine Anonymous, all are anonymous. So there, that's kind of the, the common understanding, I would argue, about both abstinence and harm reduction. There's a lot of disconnect in the field, I feel. Coming, like, I firmly believe in harm reduction. I'm very pro-harm reduction. It's a methodology that I use internally and in my work, but I work in primarily an abstinence-based organization. And that, for me, was kind of a life-changing experience of really broadening my viewpoint because I wasn't just in an echo chamber of either abstinence or harm reduction. Um, and now working in the field, I almost get confused why people view them as two very different things because they're not, they're both focused on choice, right? And if someone chooses an abstinence-based model because that's what feels good for them and that's what helps them keep safe, beautiful. If someone chooses harm reduction because that's what fits their life, beautiful. If that leads them to abstinence, great. If it doesn't, that's their choice, right? So I think both models focus on choice and dignity. Both can go wrong because any model can go wrong. So I see a lot of disconnect in the field of those two sides. But for me, at least from where I sit in the field, there's room for both. And often both are really doing the same thing. If, if abstinence reduces harm for that individual because that's the choice and the path that they've gone down, it's wonderful, right? So there's a lot of disconnect that I really struggle with. Um, but in terms of like on the ground, you know, it really comes down to the individual. If I'm supposed to be working with people based on their needs and providing that client-centered support approach, then I'm just doing whatever they feel is best for them. I'm following that path with them and supporting those goals. So it's a really interesting part. It's a difficult part of the field. Um, I often find there's a lot of infighting and a lot of arguing and a lot of really just lack of understanding. I try to have a more holistic point of view in terms of there's room for both and there should be both because we need lots of options for people. So it's kind of what it looks like is a little messy as they all are, but that's kind of where I sit with those two things. For sure. And I think with any subgroup within this social service field area uh, bubble, there's just so much complexity to just people in general that everyone has to be open to understanding that you know what works for maybe a million people isn't going to work for a small group of people and then we have to be able to understand that and come up with ways with practices that work for that group too and it just can't be ignored or viewed as not important enough to study and understand so it's uh you know it's i think it's hard because Sometimes it feels like when you are advocating for one side, then you're directly fighting on other side of the spectrum or however you want to call it. And it shouldn't always be viewed that way. And it's not usually isn't like it's, you know, much like the argument between like sex trafficking versus pro-sex work. Yeah. It's, you know, people who aren't necessarily studying or learning about it or um, in that area of work, it's easy to confuse how one is directly against the other when really they can both exist very easily. Totally. It's like we're, we're working with human beings. It's not, everything's going to fit. And I think we get, we, we lose our purpose when we're just fighting with each other. I saw a really mm-hmm. good post when they were talking about 
different uh, protest perspectives and all this infighting that happens with any of this stuff. And it happens with every social movement. But the reality is that when we're constantly fighting with each other, we really lose what we're focusing on. And if I spend all my time arguing that harm reduction is better, or abstinence is better, blah, 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 I could use that time to actually work with clients and community members and you know whatever advocacy bodies we need. So I think being critical is important and having conversations is important. But sometimes I think we can really lose sight of the fact that we can definitely have both. We can have a bring my kind of queerness into this, but we can have a rainbow of options, right? We don't need to just have one methodology. Yeah, for sure. And really the people who fight for status quo, they use that against any group. When there's a little bit infighting, they just claim, you know, they don't have it figured out, so we can't make a decision. So let's push it down a couple of years. (laughs) All right. um, Let's talk specifically about this program that you helped develop at Uh, the agency that you work at. Why don't you tell us more about it? Yeah, so Cornerstone Wellness. So Cornerstone operates a pillar system. So we have four major programming pillars. And our newest pillar is wellness. Wellness is my baby. It's my, like, I I could talk about it all day. I love wellness. So wellness at its core is a facility and program within our facility that offers wellness programs tailored specifically to individuals who are impacted by uh, addiction and or mental health. So they can come from, it's our only program at Cornerstone where you can access services for just mental health. Um, So it's just that broad spectrum. Technically, and this is the, the loophole, is that everyone's impacted by mental health. So technically anyone can access the program. It's just that language that really helps us filter out people who might just wanna use our facility as kind of a cheaper gym. So wellness is a fully equipped facility. We don't use the word gym because it's so much more than a gym. So I try to use the language of wellness center. So it is a fully equipped wellness center. We have everything that you would find at a typical gym and then we have much, much more. So we have our typical workout equipment, then we have a huge workout space, and then we have a fully equipped yoga studio and community space. So the goal of this program was about five primary goals, but really to kind of summarize it is when we talk about addiction and mental health, we often say, you need to do yoga, you need to meditate, you need to practice mindfulness, you need to get moving, you need to have structure. We do all these things, both as a service provider myself and someone who's received service, without actually having the connection of how do people get that. Wellness is a beautiful concept, but it's also highly capitalized and very expensive and inaccessible. People can't afford a gym membership, or they also just might not feel comfortable, and it might not really tick the box for what they need for their recovery. So we kind of saw this gap, and were inspired by a program in the States called Phoenix Multisport, which provides free physical activity programming for people in recovery, and wanted to see how we could fit it in Ontario and New York region specifically. So really what it is, is it's a community of people from all walks of life, all different places in life. Some people are in long-term recovery from addiction. Some people are newly sober. Some people are curious. Some people are just experiencing anxiety and depression and need some support. So we have people from all walks of life and backgrounds, and they come together to participate in wellness activities. So we have three categories. That's physical wellness, so our typical like CrossFit, running, walking, working out, strength training, weight loss, all of that stuff. 
Then we have the mental and emotional and spiritual wellness piece. So that's everything from mindfulness to meditation to some trauma-informed programs that we run, such as safe space meditations and things like that, like a lot of somatic work. So it's all that focus on not only making these programs accessible, but also making them integral to recovery. So we're filling that gap from, oh, you should try yoga to, hey, there's this space where you can do a yoga class that's tailored specifically towards recovery and well-being. So it's safe, it's geographically accessible, and it's affordable. So we do memberships for 10 bucks a month. And if you can't afford them, then we'll give you a sponsored membership. So the goal really is just get people in the door, get them out of isolation, get them out of their head and get them into a community that cares about them. Very nice. Does your program at Cornerstones differ at all from the ones in the States? Pretty substantially. The one in the States is addiction specific um, and it is focused. So it's free memberships are so 10 bucks um, and it's very, they have a lot of physical activity. So they're based in Colorado. So it's like mountain biking and hiking and rock climbing and camping. We're not quite there yet. So it's a lot more physical based and it's just a little tighter in terms of what they offer. I didn't feel right not opening it up to the mental health side of things when that's such a deeply needed service in our community. So ours is a little bit broader in terms of its reach. We function a little bit different. We also have less programs out in the community, more are in-house in our facility just because of our location and we're quite new. We're only a year old. So there's a few differences, but probably the mental health piece is the biggest and just having a little bit of a broader scope of practice because we're connected to an agency. So we can offer a little bit more or we can offer a broader reach of programs to our clients. But they that's where really where we were inspired by. We actually had a lot of conversations with them early on until we eventually developed our program. That's good. Uh, what like One of the great things about a program like this that works with people with addictions and mental health is that you can experience both as a person. And I think a lot of times in areas of the field, traditionally, people focused on one aspect of someone's life or one thing that was uh, needed support in. But then we often... Sometimes those things are either reactions to other parts of our lives or uh, they affect other parts of our lives. And so much of the field works in silos that, you know, one place that's working with this one specific person on their addiction might not be touching on, you know, things like housing insecurity. And then another group is doing that and no one knows what each other is doing. And then um, everyone just blames the other end for why this person isn't reaching the success that they try to uh, accomplish. And um, it's really cool to see a lot of new programs try to incorporate all aspects of someone's life in their programming. Like we knew for so long, this is what we need to do, but now it's actually starting to happen in a lot of programming. And that's good. Yeah. That's definitely the goal of trying to, you know, as an agency, Cornerstone can't do everything. It's just not possible. We'll never have a super agency. But we can do more in our doors for sure, right? We don't need to be so siloed and we don't need to just offer one thing. So the, the wellness center, not only is the goal to offer more, but also be less of an institutional service. Like one-on-one counseling is great. I've gotten one-on-one counseling. I provide one-on-one counseling. It's a beautiful thing. But that's one hour, maybe once a week if someone's lucky. So if we look at that, What if we can instead give someone a space where they can come five, six, seven days a week 
for an hour and then also make friends in the community and be connected to things that are beyond kind of the traditional therapeutic approach. I just find that goes so much further. It's also cheaper. Like there's just so many benefits to providing less institutional supports. And again, using that peer model that just go so far and really mm-hmm. make an impact that I find kind of is missing sometimes in the field. Mm-hmm. For sure. So let's uh, talk a little bit more about your baby and how was it conceived and give us like a quick timeline of like really brief of like conception to mm-hmm. today. Uh, how'd, how'd you get here? Yeah. So part of, I would argue the reason I was brought on was because I had both the social service work, addictions, mental health training, but also because I was an athlete. Um, And I know both sides of things. I've worked in gyms. I've gone to a million gyms. So I had both sides. So I was brought on really with discussions of bringing the Phoenix model. So that was, it's been part of my job since I started. We were applying to grants and never got them. And it was this ongoing battle. So it was like a four or five year journey to get it opened. Once we knew we had the funding in line, so we opened last June, so June 2019, we broke ground in our facility January 2019. So the actual process of building to open was six months. It was six months of mayhem. I don't think I've ever been so stressed in my entire life trying to open that facility because it's everything. It's like, okay, what does paperwork look like? What are our waivers if someone gets hurt like what's our filing process we need filing cabinets like it's just it was this like constant I'm sure you can relate with red dot of like oh we oh yeah we should do that and we need to do this and we need to revise this process so it was the six months to actually open it were absolute chaos but there was a lot of thinking and researching and processing leading up to that. It was a few years in the making of really looking at like, how do we want to do this and what do we want it to look like? And it's still evolving. In the first year, I probably changed the processes, you know, 15 times because it's this constant adjustment of figuring out how do we actually execute this so that it's as smooth uh, as possible. And it's also safe and enjoyable for our members. I take what our members say really seriously because their opinion matters much more than mine in terms of what the program looks like. Um, So the actual process of building it was a few years of conversation and research and grant writing. And then once we actually pulled the trigger, it was like just a six month whirlwind of building and construction and purchasing and organizing and then opening our doors. It was actually quite quick uh, in the grand scheme of things. Yeah, I was going to say like six months, but that's just incorporating like things of, you know, once the ball started rolling, but like you had to create the ball first, then that takes a long time. And it's, it's, you know, a lot of people look at these like huge success stories and think, oh, you know, it's so easy. And then you have an idea and then you just try to do it and it doesn't work out. It's because a lot of these things just take time and also a little bit of luck. Like there has to be the right timing. Things just have to fall into place at the right time. Um, but it's, it's not different than like a uh, one hit wonder that you see in music, right? Like you think, oh, you know, that person just came out of nowhere and had a hit and it's great for them. But a lot of times those people have been in the music industry for 10, 15 years, just trying and trying, trying to get that one hit wonder. Um, and then sustaining it is the other hard part is once you get there is how do you keep it? Exactly. Mm-hmm. So what has been like the biggest struggle with this building this program? Hmm. 
probably twofold. Logistics are challenging. I love logistical stuff. I love structures and systems and creating systems. So that it's challenging. I enjoy it though. Um, but definitely like logistically just trying to figure out how to do this in the smoothest way possible because you're running a gym Mm -hmm. like you're running a like a center in a business because we're charging people for memberships it's cheap but it's still you're taking people's money so you have to take that really seriously so it's a totally different ball game I've run support groups and fundraising events but this is a totally different ball game because you have a business essentially but then you also have the side where you're also running a service for people in a nonprofit charitable setting. So it's a very interesting world trying to do both of those things. Um, So the logistical stuff was a bit of a nightmare, like trying to handle credit card processing systems and making it smooth. And that stuff was totally outside of my realm of thought. So that was a big challenge of trying to wrap my head around like payment processing systems. Um, So that we were still and are still working out the kinks. So that was a challenge. But then the biggest challenge I find is just getting the word out. Like For me, this program is so meaningful and I think it's so life-changing and I see the impacts it makes on, an every, you know, on everyone. But it, because we're not in the Lynn, because we're not in that circle, it can be really hard to just get people in the door. Once they're in the door, it's, you just see the impact. It's like they're looking around, they're like, oh my God, this is amazing. I didn't even know this was here. And this is a challenge that Cornerstone experiences as a whole. And, you know, we don't need everybody in our doors, but I know there's lots of people who need support and would really benefit from the program. So I'm constantly looking at what are ways that I can reach the community, you know, whether it be through social media or connections I have with other agencies, but it's this constant battle of, I know that this program would benefit so many. So how do I get them in the door? How do I get people who need the service and would benefit from the service actually through our doors? So that's probably the ongoing challenge and something I'm constantly trying to kind of grapple with. For sure. It's, you know, one of those things where it is great that the fact that it's sort of hidden a little that, mm-hmm. you know, people who are accessing this place, most people in the public won't know what specifically or where they're specifically going when they go through those doors. Yeah. But then on the other end, it's, it's going to be hard to reach people. So it's that juggling of, you know, how much do you advertise that this is something that exists? This is where it is to everybody. And then also having a place where people are have their privacy met with uh, being able to access, feel comfortable there without feeling like they're being judged to get off that bus stop and walk down that street to get there. That's tough. Exactly. Yeah, I visited the place and it's beautiful. It's a beautiful facility. So it's definitely uh, for the price and what it has to offer, like you can't beat it Mm -hmm. for sure. So, you know, I would highly recommend anyone who needs a service like that to definitely take up that place and uh, try it out because it's worthwhile. So uh, looking at this model, and it's a newer model, it's sort of not something that's uh, widely out there. It's going to be really hard to measure whether your program is being successful. How do you, as somebody who runs it, try to measure that? Yeah, so we definitely have the informal methods of we're constantly talking to our members uh, daily. The beauty of our model is that we have like a community space where our members come and hang out prior to COVID. Um, So that's really nice. We're always getting that informal feedback. And we found that people are quite comfortable to tell us like, hey, I love this or I didn't love this. So we've had that, which is great. 
Then we do more of a formal anonymous survey. So we did our first one in December and the plan prior to COVID is to do it two times annually. So we, we do a lot of metrics in terms of what people are finding beneficial and why. So did it help them with their emotional health and why? Did it help them with their social health, their spiritual health, their mental health, their physical health? So trying to measure where the impact is, because that's important for me to know. It's also important for things like grants and funders. Um, But the big thing that we're looking at is also what they like and what they didn't like and what they want to see there. Because the program's so new, you have the beauty of like, it's Play-Doh. We can shape it however we want. None of this stuff is so entrenched that we can't change it. So we take that really seriously in terms of our members really wanted Saturdays. So we finagled things that we could do Saturdays. We found that was really helpful because what do people do on weekends, especially when they're newly sober, right? Having that safe space is really important. So we're doing more of the traditional metrics collection through anonymous surveys, and then we're doing the informal feedback. uh, And that's the two primary measures, how we're doing success. And then we have the stuff of like, member retention. How long are people staying? If they come and sign up, do they come back? So we have gym, like typical gym software online that measures all that stuff for us. And that's quite handy. So we can figure out how many members do we have? How fast are we getting them? And are they staying with us? Great. So obviously, right now we're living in the middle of a pandemic. And that, you know, as a gym type like facility, that obviously had to affect you and your program a lot. What has that been like? It was pretty devastating. Like we were supposed to, well, we would have celebrated our one year anniversary on June 3rd and we couldn't because we were close. That was kind of sad. We had to shut down immediately. Basically we had like one, we had the Saturday before everything really blew up. Uh, and that was our last day that we were open. So we put all our memberships on hold, obviously didn't charge anyone or anything like that. So we shut down entirely. We tried to offer a few online programs, like we had online yoga, um, some meditation programs, and like a dance fitness class. But I found as generous as our volunteers were to offer those programs, I found that people have such Zoom fatigue, and they got that pretty quickly. That although people wanted to move and wanted to connect, they just didn't want to do it online, which I get. So we tried to offer a few virtual programs, but they kind of had no attendance after a few weeks. So that was kind of disappointing, but I get it. People are really struggling. So we really, unfortunately, just had to kind of shut down. We did hear yesterday that they're starting stage three. Of course, York Region is not in it yet. But basically, as soon as York Region is in it, we're going to reopen. We'll have a few changes to our policies, but we're going to reopen. And I am so excited to have kind of our members back. We've kept in touch with our members. So we've been emailing a bunch and keeping in touch with our community. So that's been really nice and just making sure that we check in with people as best we can. And we provided virtual supports. So I was available. I was working virtually. So I was doing some counseling and some crisis support. We're helping people navigate services, like applying for financial support, stuff like that. But wellness in general, just kind of shut down so it was sad um but we are i feel like closing in on some positive reopenings i'm really excited to get the community back in the doors what are some of the steps that you had to take with uh cleanliness are i'm assuming like showers and stuff is that allowed to be open in your facility things like that we haven't decided on showers yet that will be in the meeting next week because we only have two showers so we'll have to see i have to kind of ponder that 
um, if that's possible. But yeah, we're going to be cleaning constantly. Like how we were structured before is people could come and go. So we had classes, but they could also work out. So like a typical facility, you could come and go. We'll be changing that. So we're going to go with a class structure. So everything will be relegated in like hour to hour and a half blocks. People have to sign up, whether it's online or by calling us. They'll save their spot for the class or to just work out. They'll come, do what they need to do, leave. We'll do all the cleaning. Um, so that should function pretty well. The only things that will really change is we can't have like the casual hangouts for now, uh, which is unfortunate, but I think people will really understand. So not a lot will change, just how we structure things um, and how we clean, which we already clean a lot. So I don't think that will be a big deal. Um, so it should be okay. Like it, we'll still be able to offer a lot of the same things. And luckily we have a really big space. So we are able to fit like a class of 10 without any issues. So we're lucky. We're lucky we have a big enough facility. I know a lot of like private yoga studios and things like that are really going to struggle because they have small spaces. So we're quite lucky in that way, which I'm grateful for that we can still provide services to the community. That's great. So on unrelated note, but related to COVID, what is your mask collection like? Are you using disposables? Or are you using fabric? Do you have a cool collection now or what's that like? I'm going to use fabric. We have disposable at work for people who need them, but I think as everyone knows, they are horrible and uncomfortable. So I think most people will use fabric. I have the Take Care masks. It's a Toronto brand and they're really comfortable and they go around your whole face and they say take care on the cheek, which is really cute. It makes me smile. Um, I don't have any funny ones. I saw some funny ones online, but I didn't get any funny ones. So I'm just going to use the cloth Take Care mask. You can get them at Chapters. I really like them. And it's a local brand, which I like too. So yeah, that's what we're going to be using. And then we'll have ones. People don't have to wear masks when they're doing physical activity. So that's really nice. Uh, but they'll have to have them on before and after. So I'll be rocking my black take care mask. Last question is once you guys get settled back into uh, regular routines over at the wellness program, what is next? What is the big goals for growth within the program? I have a lot of different things I'd like to do. Like personally, because my interest and passion lies so much in trauma, I'd really like to see us get some other trauma programs. I'd also really like to see us get uh, a registered dietitian as a volunteer. As I'm sure you know, and as you've seen, there is so much misinformation about nutrition. It's something I personally am really passionate about. Of There's just a lot of misinformation about diet and what's healthy and people get really overwhelmed and they really struggle with it because they see one thing on Facebook and then they Google and they see something else and then they see something on TV and people get really dejected. Wellness is not weight loss focused. I don't talk about weight loss at wellness at all, but helping people understand how to eat better, to feel better is certainly important for those that want to do that. So I'd like to get a registered dietitian on board to, even if they just do seminars, to just help with that piece. I think it's something that we don't have yet. And we have a policy where none of our personal trainers or anything are allowed to talk about diet advice because they're not registered dietitians. It's just an area that is a no-go for me because again, there's so much misinformation. So it's an area that we haven't touched upon and I'd really like to see us get there because I think it's so desperately needed. There's so much misinformation and there's also rampant disordered eating and eating disorders throughout mental health and addictions. So it's an area I'd like to get into, but we have to do it carefully. So some more trauma programs, eating programs for sure are kind of 
what I have my sights set on. And then I'd like to get more outdoor activities, like getting more hiking and stuff going. We just need more volunteers for that kind of stuff. But that's kind of where we're where we're looking right now. That's great. I think uh, that's so difficult to navigate through just eating habits and what's good for you because we have like keto and veganism and we have intermittent fasting now that's getting a lot of popularity and everyone will claim whoever lost weight doing one thing will say that's the only way to do it. And it's so hard. And when you had exercising and whenever I'm on a regular exercise routine, I'm eating all the time. So I can't intermittent fast. I know that much already. Totally. Yeah. It's it's, really hard. People, people hear words and they get trapped by them and they get confused. And my heart just goes out to people because it is, it's so hard. It's such a mess. Nutrition is such a mess. So I'd like to see if I could help people have some clarity to it and just have a, a healthier outlook on food. That's great. So we've hit that mark. We're about to wrap up now. Any last things you want to say? I think that's it. I just appreciate people being interested. I I always encourage talking about wellness and checking us out online because it's a really interesting program and I, I want more people to know about it. So I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to talk about it. Where can people find more information about your program? Facebook, Instagram, or our website are all Cornerstone to Recovery. T-O, not the number two, which is often a mistake. So facebook.com uh, slash Cornerstone to Recovery, Instagram Cornerstone to Recovery. Or just go to our website, www.cornerstonetorecovery.com, and they can click on wellness to find out more about us. Perfect. Thank you so much. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please like and subscribe and give us a rating of five stars or whatever the star system or point system is. Just give us all of it. And uh, we'll be happy to continue to give more great interviews and great content from amazing people. So please follow us at red.project on your podcast app and you'll find all our new episodes as soon as they get uploaded. Thank you so much. And we will talk to you soon. Bye.